Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where we talk with the top leaders doing the tough work of making change happen. In each episode, the world's changemakers share the projects that excite them and the habits they can't live without. I'm Linda Lacina of the World Economic Forum, and today, our leader is Brian Moynihan. He's the CEO of Bank of America, one of the largest banks in the entire world. He took that job just after the last recession and led the bank's reconstruction. Today, he has his sights on an even bigger challenge. He's helped drive the creation of a core set of metrics that help companies measure how they're doing well for society. Working with the four big accounting firms to help public companies better track records on environmental, social, and governance issues. Better known as the ESGs, this effort has outlined 21 non-financial metrics to gauge how companies are addressing problems like gender pay gaps and environmental protection. He'll talk to us about this effort and why big companies can have such a big role in shaping social good. He'll also talk a little bit about managing for the long term, how he relies on curiosity, and the importance of looking out in as a leader. But first, we'll start with those ESG metrics, why they're needed and why they're so important. We were able to put together with the big four accounting firms a set of metrics that define how to make progress on stakeholder capitalism, broader than just employees, customers, shareholders, also society. What we're trying to do is to help the basically implement and solve these great problems the world face. In 2015, the UN and the countries met and said, these are, the, these are the sustainable development goals. This is what the world needs to have, fair development, widespread development, keep making progress. The IBC, the International Business Council, has been working for a number of years to think about how do companies manage for the long-term and not short-term, quarterly earnings, pressures, et cetera. Then how do you think about that? How do you measure that? And now against that, you have the ESG movement, which is a broad movement going, going on in society to try to measure companies who do well on ESG metrics. And so what that has led to is a lot of metrics, whether it's governmental metrics, standard setter metrics, rating agency metrics, people ranking us on things, what people refer to as an alphabet soup of groups that have come about. And that has led to companies saying, wait a second, this has all become way too complex. And so what we tried to do is to bring that together to get a set of metrics, which aligns the right thing to do, drive the SDGs, which gives rise to stakeholder capitalism, which companies can actually disclose. And so the idea of the IVC, which is 130 large companies working with the big four accounting firms is, let's go out and find out everything that's out there. We're not gonna invent new metrics. Let's then coalesce around, you think of a bunch of codes, concentric circles, and let's pick the group in the middle that we know companies can do, and we know people are interested in, and then let's put them on the table and say, let's, let's go with those and align them against the SDGs and give us a framework. And then you can measure a company's progress And that then gives all those standard setters, shareholders, the society at large, customers, employees, a way to say this company is making progress along the metrics which align to the SDGs. Sure. And and without this effort, uh, what would have happened? I think what you have is what goes on today, which is there there are certain things that are very important to certain people, and it's wonderful they're so invested in them. And it might be the environment, it might be human capital questions, it might be clean water. They have great arguments they had about the proper way to measure equal pay for equal performance, for example. Great arguments to measure what diversity means or doesn't mean. Great arguments to measure you know, carbon neutra- neutrality in scope one, two, three. And then you get caught in those things. What you have is a bunch of different metrics, lots of standards. Some are doable, some are disclosable, all of which are great work and good thinking but just keeps going in all different directions. And what you don't have is longitudinal assessment capabilities where you can assess a company across time 
whether they're making progress or whether they're doing enough to be worthy of investment, lending to, purchasing from, working for whatever the uh, particular constituency has. Companies that do well on the ESG metrics tend to be well-performing companies in general. Why is this another helpful input for us to sort of know who to support and, and where money should be going? Our research team, led by Candice Browning Platt, is the number one research team, and they were an early leader in this. And the way they went about this was to try to prove the question of whether you can equate performance and per- performance for uh, typical shareholder metrics, return equity, uh, shareholder returns, et cetera, and performance for ESG metrics. And as they studied it and backwards tested it, what is clearly not debatable is people who underperform on ESG metrics tend to get in trouble. And if you go back and look at across time, our colleagues uh, have proven that you could have avoided the bankruptcy. And that's an important question because if I avoid the companies that perform badly, my performance as an investor will outperform. If I happen to pick the ones that perform well, I can even more perform. The second then is sort of the moral basis for the question, which is we have to make progress on the uh, the ESG or else we're going to have a problem. And we had to have a way of measuring people. The third is we got a lot of questions as us as providers of capital and lending and others, divest or not divest. So the issue was industry A is bad, don't lend to it. Industry B is bad, tell your wealth management clients that we have in Merrill, don't invest in it. The problem with that is it's binding. And what you really want is to stay with the companies making progress on their environmental path to help the world get to where it needs to get. You want to help those companies by staying invested as opposed to divest across a whole industry indiscriminate of whether the companies are trying to make the transition or not. And that's, that's what this, the companies needed this to happen for that reason. What surprised you during this time, working uh, with all the, the, the top firms, working on these metrics, getting some alignment? This is a big project. Uh, there's a lot of different moving parts. What surprised you about this process? Well, what, what surprised me was understanding how confusing it was to even large companies. I thought this was going to be a little bit about more about a philosophical point of view, stakeholder capital, giving metrics to measure so it has teeth as opposed to being a, a, a set of principles that can be measured. That's what I thought this would be about. And so what surprised me is the number of large companies who were sort of, for lack of a better term, frustrated by the alphabet soup and the demands with no system to solve it. And that then not only surprised me, but also became the problem statement, so to speak. Now, the thing that didn't surprise me is the amount of good things big companies do, companies overall do around the world is, is just shocking. And they do all that and they still quite don't get credit for it. And therefore, the metrics are a way to get them credit for it on a consistent basis, for lack of a better term, to show that they're doing the right thing. But the lack of ability to sort it out was, was uh, a little surprising. With these metrics, you have the ability to measure the progress that big companies are doing, and as a result, have a better chance to scale that progress. Given that, what's the before and after? What's the change we could expect? You know, I, I think the before and after now is a, the before is a, a group of companies who want to be able to be, live up to the statement they have to live for, to drive stakeholder capitals. And think of the business roundtable statement in the United States uh, and similar statements in the IBC and the history. So you have, you know, the before is a group of companies who want to do it, a, a group of companies who do it in a lot of different ways, a group of investors who look at it a lot of different ways, and a group of standard setters who look at it a lot of different ways, and potential emerging regulation that may go about it in a way that none of us like, you know, that may 
And then when you go to after, what you'd like to do is have a, you know, a set of metrics and progress on those metrics that companies could be recognized and rewarded for making, whether it's by their consumers, their employees, or their shareholders, or society, that then would lead more and more companies to move faster so the big problems are moving on a path of potential solution. You know, that's the after you're looking for, which is a, a quit spending so much time about what to measure, how to measure, what the perfect measurement, and a lot more time about making progress and holding people accountable who don't make progress and rewarding the people who do make progress and, and using that energy to compel more and more action to get the major issue solved. You're helping to drive all this. Why is it so important to you personally? It's the right thing to do. I think as one of the major banking companies in the world, one of the major public companies in the world, what motivated me personally was when I looked at it from our uh, basic values, we have always been a believer that we had a broader purpose. Banks are of that. They're of the communities. At the end of the day, we know that these progress points on the SDGs are important to society. I, I think that simplicity of, of let's quit talking about talking, let's have some action here, I think is critical. And so that's what drives me is a chance to, you know, as a, as a leader of the IBC, take the power that is in the WEF and in the big four accounting firms and in those CEOs and use it to kind of push the thing along. It's, it's, it's been important. And it's not just for me personally, it's for all those CEOs to, you know, to show that we, we, capitalism will solve these problems. And if we don't aim capitalism at them, they're not going to get solved. You've said that when uh, tackling big issues, uh, it's important to look at what works and what scales. <laughs> what other factors do you consider when you're weighing what sort of program to prioritize or what to back? Our company has 200,000 people working for it, 60 million customers. So everything has to work at scale. And so what we're looking is for good ideas, which you can scale through all the communities that need them. So, you know, I think a lot about scaling about these issues, but one is just to understand the fundamental issue, tailor it toward the community, because otherwise you end up with a bunch of interesting small projects. So we've got to scale some of these ideas. We're not going to make progress. You've talked about the phrase, nice start at Bank of America. When someone has accomplished something, that's great. But acknowledging, hey, You've got a little bit of a road ahead of you. Can you tell us a little bit about why that mindset is so important when you're tackling really, really big long-term goals? A great business writer, Jim Collins, was speaking to our group once. That was seven or eight years in the transformation from the financial crisis to where we were. And the room got quiet at the end. And he basically then said, nice start. And what he meant by that is you have so much more ahead of you. And we as a society, we as a company, you know, we have so much ahead of us. There's so many, think about the wonderful things that go on in the last decade or two decades or three decades. And the question is, where does it go next? And there's always more to do. There's always more success ahead of us. We do want to celebrate the success of the past and, and, and the things we do, but let's get on with the future and not linger in the past and linger in success or linger in partial completeness of an idea. And even in the context of the ESG metrics, just because we have the metrics until we get people to adopt them and put them out there, without that follow through, it's just another white paper. The coronavirus brought lots of emergencies that people needed to deal with. Uh, how do you sort of stay the course with long-term thinking and long-term projects to make sure that you don't get distracted by emergencies and calamities? We sit with what we call our placemat and our framework about the company. And we try to always keep focused on those operating principles we have as a company. Well, that sounds high polluting. You know, it is it's how you make the decision path. But the real idea is to have a framework and keep introducing that to people and making sure people think of how it fits into their day-to-day decisioning. The coronavirus has brought great change around the world. What is it that helped you navigate during this time? 
having lived through a few crises in my life, you learn from them. And I think the key in a crisis is to, for the leader is to, is to be calm. And you can be worried about everything, but you have to be calm and you have to create good energy and good action, not energy and action. And what I mean by good energy and good action is solutions and driving people to those solutions and, and getting things done and not worry about, you know, the long term in a way that, that preoccupies people what the theoretical best answer might be in 10 years when you're facing an immediate need. And, and the bias has to be the action, an action based on a set of principles and values that you'll know will stand time. And then, you know, you got to kind of ignore hierarchy for a short period of time. So there, there's a time now where I'm talking to people a couple steps removed from me with the whole group daily that I necessarily wouldn't talk to or have them talk in front of this broader group, but for the fact we need real-time information about what they're working. And then the key is to ignore some of the hierarchy in some of the ways and, and not let people run the business and do the solutions, but raise up the issues so people can learn from them in real time and get that information and, and take off with it. The other important thing is also think out in. Don't think about what you're doing. Think about what the person is actually doing the work in the company organization is doing and how do you make it the easiest for them to do that. During the pandemic, Bank of America began reimbursing employees for childcare payments. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and how that ladders up to long-term goals and priorities? So in the context of the last six, nine months, it didn't take long for us to realize that the real risk when schools emptied, that, that the person who was now working from home it's just been impossible for them to have two kids at home that needed to be educated through telecom, which nobody had done before at any scale. I mean, we have had a huge problem in terms of effectiveness of our teammates. Decision on childcare, yes, it's also a pragmatic decision that we needed to keep our teammates productive and keep their mental stress down. That's part of responsible growth, keeping employees safe in the near term, providing a set of benefits which allowed them to work and, and deal with the realities of what was going on at home. So good equipment at home childcare, the mental stress was high. So push the mental wellness help, make sure people are covered on their benefits, free testing, all the things that we did to enable them to feel good about doing their job as opposed to focused on the top of the house because we'll be fine. So you have to think out in as opposed to in out. What other traits or factors do you depend on? I, I believe strongly in curiosity. It, and so you know, one of my roles is to learn from people outside the company. I think the idea for me is to, is to maintain curiosity. And the, the fundamental way you do that is, is reading and, and, and absorbing information from the outside. The real way you absorb you know, is through reading stuff that is not on topic. And so newspapers and articles, you know, one of the big concerns I've had watching my children grow up is that is the curation of information is different than when I grew up. Now you can sort of say, only give me articles about X, Y, and Z, and that's all you'll see, you know, and so or your feed and who you follow and all that stuff. My jo job to see is always be out looking outside the company because I have this wonderful, talented team that runs the company and does all the hard work. So I've got to be looking outside the company and think about how something going on outside affects us internally and challenge people to think about it too. The challenge for young kids is to keep them looking outward. Is there a book that you recommend that you've read that you said, you know, everybody should read this or possibly even something that's challenged you or changed your mind? Is there something that you recommend to people, a book that they should be reading? Uh, it, it comes back to the idea of being curious. Every year I talk to the, you know, the summer kids and they always want to know how, you know, how do I be CEO? And, and the thing I try to say to them is the minute you're going to leave that academic situation you're in of college, 
you, you are going to get less smart the next day unless you stay really curious because everything you're going to have is going to start to channel you into something. A given field you chose, a given part of a given field, so becoming the Bank of America and then you're working in you know, equity underwriting, it's going to channel you to learn a lot about equity underwriting. So you have to stay curious about everything out there so that you can bring to equity underwriting stuff that has nothing to do with equity underwriting and that's where you add value. So that was always a, a thing I used to talk about a lot. And then I was reading the Wall Street Journal and I, I stumbled in a book written by a fellow named Brian Grazer, who is one of the wonderful Hollywood producers. And so he'd written a book about being curious. He obviously is tremendously talented and creative, but, but he started off, you know, going to law school type of thing. And then he learned more about the business and, you know, got to where he's gotten elder curiosity. And, you know, he describes how he made his career about these curiosity conversations. And I think that's the issue is even in time of stress, how do you make curious about ask the next question? Try to find the next point. Don't presume you know. Um, be willing to say, I'm probably wrong. Let me figure out how to get right as opposed to I'm right. Go do it. You know, that curiosity, you know, in a short-term issue is important. And so it, it, the book's called A Curious Mind by Brian Grazier. I'd recommend it to anybody, especially younger people. They, they should read it because it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, fun read, but also embedded in his basic message of curiosity. That was Brian Moynihan from Bank of America. But while we're on the topic, I want to give a little background on those curiosity conversations from Brian Grazier's book. Grazier, a producer on movies like Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind, has for years conducted curiosity conversations with hundreds of people outside entertainment in fields like politics and science, peppering people ranging from Barack Obama to Tyra Banks with what Grazier calls genuine questions. These are questions not designed to get anything in return. And while that approach inspires Grazier's work as a storyteller, it also helps him as a manager. Open-ended questions spark creativity and collaboration between people one-on-one, and they can even untangle big problems, helping you get answers to things you wouldn't get any other way. Some examples include, what are you focused on? Why are you focused on that? What are you worried about? What's your plan? Writes Grazier, None of these are yes or no questions. They're questions where the answer itself can be a story. These questions are critical to building trust. Grazier writes, when we stop asking genuine questions, and most important, when we stop really listening to the answers, that's when we start to lose our connection. Coming up next on Meet the Leader, we'll talk to Netta Corin, the CEO of Orbs and the founder of Hexa Foundation, a nonprofit organization using blockchain to create social impact. She'll explain how new technologies can help prevent one of the internet's most pernicious problems, illegal and abusive sexual imagery. We're actually using fingerprints of these photos, kind of like a code or a hash that marks these photos and all the cloud platform has to do is scan every new photo against the global database of illegal photos. And if it comes out as tagged, then they remove it. For the majority of internet users, we can today remove the images for them and help cloud platforms remove all the images um, from their user base. Before we go, don't forget to check out a special edition of the Great Reset podcast featuring jobs and the economy. Here's a sneak preview about how the COVID crisis has devastated women's employment and why a true recovery can't leave women behind. Don't miss this week's special episodes of The Great Reset, the World Economic Forum podcast that looks at building a better, fairer, smarter world after the COVID crisis. These special episodes will feature daily coverage of the Jobs Reset Summit, 
and interviews with top leaders on how the world can tackle global employment problems. This October 23rd, day four of the summit, will focus on equity, inclusion, and social justice with insights from UN Women Executive Director Fomzile Malambu Naguka, who will explain how the pandemic has pulled women out of the labor market. The majority of the people who have lost jobs are women. The ILO estimates that two-thirds of the jobs that will be lost and not recovered are women's jobs. She'll remind us that if key steps aren't taken, some women might never return to the office. And when it comes to opportunity, a woman's place might only be in the home. And we say that women can also work from home. We must not find a situation where it's only women who will end up working from home uh, because they have to do the home work as well as the office work in the home. So that say offices that can just be in another locker room, the places where men only go. Hear from her and other top leaders discuss the COVID job crisis in this week's special episodes of The Great Reset. Thanks so much to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, Anna Bruce Lockhart, and Mark Jones. Thanks also, of course, to Brian Moynihan. Thanks also to you for listening. Please rate and review, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Meet the Leader is available on all the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Meet the Leader is bi-weekly, and we'll be back in two weeks. Until next time, I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a wonderful day.